Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME podcast. CME Outfitters LLC is the accredited provider for this continuing education activity. This educational activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant from Shire. This activity is titled ADHD Across the Ages, Focus on the Adult. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. David Barron, Dr. David W. Goodman, and Dr. James McCracken. Dr. Barron, our moderator for today's activity, is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences in the Department of Neuroscience at Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Barron has disclosed that he receives grants from the National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Institute of Mental Health. He serves as a consultant to the California Academy of Family Physicians, Eli Lilly and Company, the Singapore Institute of Mental Health, and the University of Cairo. He is also on the data monitoring team of Pharmaceutical Product Development Incorporated. Dr. Goodman is the director of Suburban Psychiatric Associates, LLC, and director of the Adult Attention Deficit Disorder Center of Maryland. He is also an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Goodman has disclosed that he receives research grants from Cephalon Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, New River Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Ortho McNeil, and Shire Pharmaceuticals. He receives honoraria from the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, Audio Digest Foundation, CME Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Accepta Medica, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, J.B. Ashton Associates, Medscape, Neuroscience Education Institute, Ortho McNeil, Shire Pharmaceuticals, SinerMed Communications, Temple University, Veritas Institute, WebMD, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Goodman is on the Speakers Bureaus of Forest Laboratories Incorporated, McNeil Pediatrics, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to Avocat, Clinical Global Advisors, Eli Lilly and Company, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, Ortho McNeil, New River Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Shearing Plow Corporation, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and Thomson Reuters, and receives royalties from MBL Communications. Dr. McCracken is the Joseph Campbell Professor of Child Psychiatry and Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Simmel Institute and David Geffen School of Medicine. He is also a staff physician at Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital at the University of California at Los Angeles in Los Angeles, California. Dr. McCracken has disclosed that he receives grants from Aspect Medical Systems Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, and Seaside Pharmaceutical Incorporated. He serves as a consultant to Biomarin Pharmaceutical Incorporated and Novapharm. Over the next hour, Dr. Barron, Dr. Goodman, and Dr. McCracken will lead us through their presentation. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 406 or call 877-CME-PROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you may complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test, or you can complete the credit request form and evaluation form which are included in the course materials. 
Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Welcome to Neuroscience CME-TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. developed by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Dave Barron. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the Department of Neuroscience at Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Neuroscience CME Live and on demand, the continuing educational series devoted to the needs of the professional neuroscience community. Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for multidisciplinary clinical audiences. Today's broadcast of Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand is also being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencescme.com. I encourage you to visit the site, for more educational activities to help you and your colleagues in your practice. I'd also like to remind you to stick around for our After the Show segment, where you'll be invited to call or email us with your most challenging cases or questions. We've received a lot of positive feedback regarding this segment and encourage you to keep sending in your cases and comments. And with that, let me welcome you to today's program, which is entitled ADHD Across the Ages, Focus on the Adult. I'm excited about today's program and look forward to discussing evidence-based practice recommendations that will enhance our care of adults with ADHD. Let me start by reviewing today's objectives. The first objective is one of the simplest, but maybe one of the most important, and that's the area of looking for ADHD. What we'd like to do today is have you consider this on your radar screen for any adult patients that might meet the criteria. This will both help in not only diagnosing the condition, but in really improving overall detection rates. And as we're going to hear, this is a significant issue that needs to be addressed. Our second learning objective is going to be looking at specifically how to diagnose this condition, with particular emphasis on that vexing problem of comorbid conditions. As we're going to hear, comorbidity is more the rule rather than the, the exception in dealing with adult ADHD. And we're going to spend a good deal of time focusing on it to help you, the provider, deal with making the diagnosis and developing a treatment strategy, which is really our third objective. So once you're thinking about it, it's on your radar screen, you've made that diagnosis, then what do we do? And our third learning objective will be to develop a strategy tailored to the individual. This is not a one-size-fits-all. We're going to talk about a comprehensive treatment plan that will best deal with your patient and their life disorders associated with their ADHD symptoms. This is going to be a, a particularly important issue since we really don't have uh, evidence-based guidelines like we do in many other illnesses. But I think you'll find we have some important pearls to share with you. 
Now I'd like to welcome my two colleagues joining me today. Dr. David Goodman is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. He's also the director of the Adult Attention Deficit Disorder Center of Maryland and also director of Suburban Psychiatric Associates, LLC. Welcome, David. Hi, Dave. Also joining me today is Dr. James McCracken. Jim is the Joseph Campbell Professor of Child Psychiatry at the Semmel Institute and David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles. He's also staff at the UCLA Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Well, let's get started by addressing our first learning objective related to the screening of ADHD. Jim, I think you'll agree that the ADHD is often underdetected in adults. Um, why do you think this is so? What's the real magnitude of the problem? Well, David, uh, it was Paul Winder, I think, back in the 70s and 80s, who first brought our attention to the persistence of ADHD into adulthood and really began this whole uh, field. And he uh, made the point that ADHD is probably the most common chronic undiagnosed psychiatric disorder in adults. And that's largely due to the fact that it's rarely inquired about and usually um, overlooked. I've often said that uh, the biggest obstacle to diagnosing and treating ADHD is really our lack of uh, training that we provided for physicians to even have a clinical suspicion about it in the first place. And I would just like to add that physicians haven't been trained on adult ADHD. And in fact, even today, currently in psychiatric programs, there are very few programs that even have a single lecture on adult ADHD. So we're all coming up to field on this in the field. We've appreciated that ADHD is more often than not persistent from childhood into adolescence and into adulthood, probably in the majority of individuals, 50 to uh, 66%, at least uh, continuing to have symptoms into their third decade. So it's not surprising that then this is a pretty prevalent condition in adults. I think one of the issues I remember when I was in medical school, that we were taught that ADHD was kind of like psychic acne. You grew out of it. I mean, as you said, it wasn't until the 70s with the Utah group that we really first started to appreciate that this is an adult disease. Well, because of that, what are some of the other issues related to the kind of the under-recognition of this, which obviously results in some real clinical problems? Well, there are long-term studies. We now know that children followed 10, 15, 20 years will continue to have impairing symptoms to a, a functional disability. And so we know that it continues. We have neuroscience imaging. And the prevalence rate in adults in the U.S. is about 4.5%. So you have a large number of patients who presumably have this but haven't been identified. We talk about ADHD, adult ADHD, as if it's something unique, as if it's a rare disorder not seen by other people. But um, actually, with a prevalence rate of 4.5%, it's higher than the prevalence rate of schizophrenia at 1%, bipolar disorder at 2%, generalized anxiety disorder at 3%, and major depression is out there at 7%. So here you have a condition that's more prevalent than other conditions we screen for, and yet nobody asks questions about adult ADHD. This is why it should be part of every mental health evaluation, not only for children and adolescents, but also for adults. This is bread and butter adult mental health, uh, but it's too often unrecognized. Well, I wonder if you could pick up on that point, Jim, about the, the kind of what are some of the real diagnostic challenges that are, that are resulting in the underdiagnosis? I mean, maybe it's just that this is a difficult diagnosis, so people aren't looking for it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first and foremost, again, um, 
it's not often up there in terms of uh, individuals having a high index of clinical suspicion for it. Um, that's a major problem. But there are some other issues that get in the way of its recognition. Um, to some extent, we're, we struggle with the translation, if you will, of the symptoms uh, from this childhood-described illness as those symptoms um, appear in adults. Uh, sometimes working with adults, their recollection of childhood is fuzzy, and uh, trying to establish that childhood onset can be tough. Comorbidity, um, we'll hear more about that later, uh, I believe, but the overlapping symptoms of poor concentration, inattention of uh, common comorbid disorders, such as anxiety, uh, can be difficult. And patients will come in complaining about anxiety and depressed mood as an as a outcome of their negative consequences from ADHD and, and, and distract the clinician from, from looking for ADHD as well. Do you think clinicians feel more comfortable when it comes to, certainly psychiatrists or other mental health professionals, dealing with depression and anxiety, kind of the bread and butter of what we do as behavioral health practitioners, and feel less comfortable, kind of less that zone of comfort, as it were, with ADHD? Uh, no question about it. Our, our training often fall short in terms of even just um, how to pursue or query these symptoms in adults. But they're, they're common, as we, we said. I think the other thing that gets in the way, patients vary remarkably, in my experience, in terms of their insight about uh, their own behavior, including um, inattention, concentration, and, and how it um, affects them functionally in their day-to-day -day, uh, living. And then uh, the other thing is that um, we often, as is the case with many of the other disorders we diagnose, we may not have the full symptom complement um, readily apparent in, in front of us there. So we have to deal with those kind of probable diagnostic situations, and, and that can be tough. Well, we've been talking about some of the difficulties. Jim, what do you think are some of the proper steps that we need to take in regards to making uh, an accurate diagnosis? Well, again, uh, this is a disorder diagnosed by careful clinical history. There's no substitute for that. And here we're looking um, uh, especially at the longitudinal history. We want to go back to those early uh, childhood periods, looking for adjustment to school and other settings, and develop a portrait of the individual over time, um, including how these symptoms have continued to manifest themselves when present um, across the lifespan. Uh, so there's um, a heavy emphasis on that clinical history taking, uh, hopefully uh, augmented or complemented by information from other sources. Mm -hmm. This is key for ADHD diagnosis. Talking to spouse, partner, family, parents if you can. It's time-consuming, but it needs to be done. And looking across multiple settings, um, this isn't just a workplace disorder. Um, it has impact uh, across the board in many functional uh, areas. Um, so we'd certainly a ask a lot about childhood history. Family history can be very important in raising that index of suspicion. Because it's highly heritable, and so we go looking for other first-degree family members who have ADHD. If you have a child with ADHD, the likelihood that a parent has it is 30%. If a parent has ADHD, the likelihood a child has it 50%. So we now talk to primary care physicians and pediatricians. When they diagnose ADHD in the child, go off to the parents and say, okay, which one of you might have this so we can get everybody treated in the house? So assessing also for comorbidity, um, 
frequently these ADHD is going to overlap with other conditions. And then another big recommendation for clinicians is the use of structured data gathering tools, rating scales that could be completed by the patient even prior to the evaluation. This is a time efficient and um, very thorough way in, in which to query symptoms. Not a substitute for that clinical history I talked about, but a great way to sort of complement or corroborate um, an increasing suspicion of ADHD. Yeah, right. one of the, go ahead. And if, the, and if it's hard to get the collateral information, what I often do is send a rating scale home, a spouse fills it out, or send it to a mom of an adult who fills it out as the patient was as a child. So we get either corroboration for childhood history or we get corroboration for chronicity and impairment by an outside source. Yeah, I can't help but share this vignette that I've been asked many times, so what's the best screening instrument for diagnosing ADHD? And I think we've highlighted how important this is. And I have a kind of a standard answer. I said, well, there's two instruments that are pretty much fail-proof, but you have to learn how to use them. And everybody would say, you know, they got their pens out. So what are these two? I said, it's your left and right ear. Because if you learn how to ask the right questions and listen, the diagnosis becomes a lot easier. On that same line, so we know that for 70 years this was described as a disease of kids. Again, you know, we thought it was psychic acne. You grew out of it. So, Jim, I wonder if you could comment on how the symptoms morph from childhood to those 50 to 60 to 70 percent who will carry the, the disease on into adulthood. Sure. Well, some of the symptoms track um, very easily into adulthood. So complaints about the child who was too talkative, too loud. You see that in adults, too. Coworkers complain, etc. But other symptoms um, maybe uh, are a little, require more translation, if you will. Um, that child who can't stay seated, well, that might be the adult who um, has trouble just sitting down for meals or describes enormous impatience. Um, in meetings, things like that. Um, the hyperactive symptoms tend to be less prevalent, but a lot of adults with ADHD will tell you that they, subjectively they feel very uncomfortable, very very fidgety. You know what um, I've seen? A lot of patients, you'll go, you'll do a lecture, do it, and they'll sit in a tap or their legs go left, right. That I think we can see that, you know, kind of the, 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 the clinical phenotype of people who kind of have that ants in their pants mentality. Well, you have to know what you're looking at, because if you have somebody who shows up late chronically, doesn't finish their assignments, makes careless errors, and doesn't get things done to your liking, people say, well, maybe that person's passive-aggressive. Before you ascribe motivational or personality factors to behavior, reflect back on this presentation and say, you know, this person looks like maybe they have ADHD. And once you get your glasses on, you start seeing ADHD all over the place. It's the secretary who shows up late all the time, makes careless mistakes, misfiles papers. You sit down and say, look, let's get this straightened out. And she keeps doing the same thing week in and week after. And you say, she's just lazy or she doesn't care about her job. That's somebody who has ADHD. Disorganization, yeah. not working up to someone's uh, clear potential. Those the, things, I could have been are... a contender phenomena, right? That, you, know, <laughs> you know, I know I'm as smart as they are, but what the hell? I'm not able to, to achieve what I think I should have, and people have been telling me I'm an achiever all my life. Yeah, really important points, I think, for us, you know, that as clinicians, we need to kind of keep in mind. David, I want to flow it back to you. You know, we've been talking about, you know, we need to be thinking about this and looking at it, but 
Talk to us about the differential diagnosis of adult ADHD. Well, I'm glad you bring this up because as I listen to this conversation, viewers might say, look, you know, I have some inattention and occasionally I'm disorganized. And I'm not. This starts looking like every normal yeah. adult phenomenon. It's, it's not. This is a level and order of magnitude higher. It's consistent. It's every single day. You could have a sleep disorder. If you have sleep apnea, you could have inattention and cognitive dysfunction. So go looking for sleep problems. You could have medical conditions or you're on medication that compromise your cognitive ability. But usually there's a temporal relationship to the onset of those cognitive symptoms and the medical illness or the medication. So this is a childhood onset that persists longitudinally and chronically. Unlike the mood disorder patient says, I didn't feel this way two months ago. The adult with ADHD says, I've always been this way. Yeah, so we really need to focus on the, kind of those functional impairments, which I think is very much the medical model. You know, we see this in other chronic diseases, whether it be diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. So we, we've got this, this in our mindset. So what are some of the scales? I mean, we talked about that there are many of out there. Dave, what if you could comment on some of the scales to evaluate symptoms and functioning? Well, there's a long list of scales for adults. They certainly have been developed for children. Now we have validated standardized scales for adults. And they're frequently used in research protocols for inclusion and exclusion criteria. They were developed by Tom Browns and Russell Barkley and Paul Wender and Keith Connors. The one that is available that I find particularly helpful is the World Health Organization Adult ADHD self-report symptom checklist. It's got 18 symptoms. I believe the scale is going to be available on the website of this program so it can be downloadable. And the patient Correct. fills this out, takes them 60 seconds to fill it out, takes you 15 seconds to look at it, and then you can ask specific questions on the target symptoms. And that way, it's a very time-efficient fashion of eliciting all of the 18 symptoms and see if you reach the symptom threshold. Now, having said that, you don't give this and make the diagnosis with the checklist. The diagnosis is made by the clinical interview complemented by the checklist. I, think I would say that um, um, you know, clinicians should pick uh, one or two of them, get that familiarity, that comfort. Um, they are straightforward in their interpretation. But there are also um, excellent norms to compare the individual patient scores against. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I think they're, they're very informative. And as you said, David, allow us to hone in our clinical inquiry to um, some select uh, areas. And for busy clinicians, time efficiency. Everybody says, yeah, I know I need to screen for this latest and newest and most important disorder. But I've already been screening for 60 other yeah. disorders. Give me something that's time efficient. And then that forms your baseline for intervention as well. And we really need to emphasize monitoring. Uh, so it gives you that benchmark going forward. Right, and becomes time efficient to follow yeah, the tracking. I, I found, I, I actually like that, the WHO, the ASRS, and put it in the chart and use it not only as a way to monitor the symptoms, but to feed back to the patient. You know, geez, you know, you, you're really, we're showing some improvement here. We talked about the, the kind of the comprehensive evaluation Maybe we could spend a few minutes talking about the important role of the multidisciplinary team. And I think medicine and psychiatry are clearly going in that direction. What if you could share your thoughts on, on how to best utilize and the role of that multidisciplinary team in the evaluation and management of ADHD adults? I, I think uh, working with multiple disciplines um, is, is very helpful with respect to, to ADHD, in part because these individuals present in all kinds of ways, mm -hmm. uh, as you were talking about before. And different um, settings for different clinicians. Exactly. Um, marital conflict, um, 
possible mood, anxiety symptoms, um, uh, legal difficulties. So um, mental health professionals, uh, broadly speaking, need to, to have that same suspicion that ADHD needs to be considered. Uh, likewise, when it comes to treatment, as we'll talk about before, very clear in order to reach optimal outcomes that one's going to have to bring to bear a, a whole host of different treatments, and importantly, psychosocial treatments, forms of therapy, uh, perhaps couples therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychoeducation. So um, having that team approach can be very, very useful. If one's working in a, a, an academic setting or a large practice setting, that may already exist for the solo practitioner, one has to kind of create that team mm-hmm. through one's um, professional networks. Yeah, one of the things that I've found is particularly important now, maybe more so than it was years ago, was so many psychiatrists are doing kind of the, the, the brief med checks, you know, the 10, 15-minute med checks. And I think my own experience has been that it, it's really even more important now that the team interact with one another because if I'm just sitting writing a prescription, I might not get some of the really important data that we've talked about both in making the diagnosis initially and then developing a treatment strategy. What are your thoughts? Well, it's not only psychiatrists who are doing that. Uh, physicians in general are under pressure. Uh, primary care docs see a, a, an awesome number of patients on a daily basis, uh, and they do need time-efficient, effective yeah. ways of titrating the, the, the medication and, and keeping people in treatment. Great. That interdisciplinary team, too, can really yeah. help with compliance or adherence. Absolutely. Well, let's jump into learning objective number two. So how do we apply the current DSM criteria to make the diagnosis with particular emphasis on this, this bugaboo of such a high level of comorbidity? Jim, can you address that for us? Well, we're in this kind of challenging situation with the current criteria. These criteria were developed um, as a description of ADHD in school-age children. So uh, as we said before, they don't always map well to adult symptomatology. Nevertheless, um, that's what we have to live with for now, although there may be modifications coming in the near future with um, uh, DSM-5. But uh, the the symptom thresholds are the same. So for the nine possible inattentive symptoms, one has to meet criteria for six or more. Uh, Likewise, for the hyperactive impulsive Uh, nine possible symptoms, six or more to cross that threshold, or with the combined subtype, um, six of nine of of both of those symptom dimensions. And then um, the childhood onset, the impairment across other settings, and that the symptoms aren't better explained by another mental disorder, Um, and that the symptoms have been present for um, a long time, greater than, than six months. Right, and one of the challenges to applying this to adults is the age seven criteria. A lot of adults will not be able to recall symptoms before age seven, and if you hold that as a rigid guideline, you will not make the diagnosis in people who have the yeah. condition. It's Dr. Steve Ferrone did a study looking at adults who were able to recall symptoms before age seven, and then he took a group that he called late onset, those that recalled symptoms between age seven and 12. And he looked at symptom thresholds. He looked at functional impairment, psychiatric comorbidity. For both groups, it was exactly the same. So it's the same disorder, and this arbitrary decision of age 7 was decided in 94 when we looked at hyperactive disruptive voice, not the inattentive subtype. In the future, it might end up being that the criteria are modified to require fewer symptoms in adults. Um, We'll have to see how that... that, uh, 
works itself out. But um, certainly this, this issue of when did the symptoms first appear is where clinical judgment comes yeah. into play. Uh, many individuals who are uh, bright or who even as children and adolescents develop compensatory strategies uh, to make up for their inattention, um, end up uh, getting diagnosed later. Mm -hmm. And we can come to understand that by um, that careful history. Look, a couple of important points I think that you made was this issue of not just looking at during the school day or the work day for adults, but this is a disease that's a 24-7 disease and looking for life impairments in other areas. Jim, I wonder if you could follow up on one of the real challenges I think for us as clinicians is patients don't have the good sense to read the textbooks and only present with the symptoms that we read. What do we do in the case of a patient who maybe doesn't quite meet full criteria? Well, that's where I think um, really pressing hard to get information from other sources becomes even more crucial. So trying to get the, the spouse in or mm-hmm. another family member, uh, trying to connect with, with the parent uh, um, in an interview or on the phone, um, asking the patient to dig up yeah. um, historical data, um, anything that you can to, to try to um, secure a sense that these are problems that indeed were present early on, maybe not that impairing, but as the individual has moved on, um, yeah. are indeed responsible for a good deal of impairment. And I don't know if it's that much different. A patient comes in with a blood pressure of, you know, 132 over 92. I think, David, you made the point that we're really looking at functional impairment if we're going to treat. I want to throw it back to you, David. This issue of comorbidity in ADHD, um, particularly in regards to, to, to the diagnosis, I wonder if you could address this a bit more specifically for us. Well, comorbidity is more often the order of day with adults with ADHD. The lifetime comorbidity is about 70%. The concurrent comorbidity, and that's what the clinician wants to know. If somebody comes in with ADHD, are they coming in with something else? The likelihood is about 45 to 50%. So if you look at the prevalence rates of the major psychiatric conditions here in this slide, you'll see what the prevalence rates are. But when you look at the adult ADHD population, you'll notice that the comorbidity rates are substantially higher for mood disorders, bipolar disorder, major depression, GAD, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so before you congratulate yourself that you've made the diagnosis of ADHD and prescribed treatment, make sure that you've ruled in or ruled out any other coexisting because you need to come up with a diagnostic prioritization in order to treat one condition without making the other conditions worse. It's like that ADHD is functioning as a general risk factor for psychopathology across the board. Um, Even substance abuse is a well-recognized comorbidity, particularly tobacco use, smoking rates, and marijuana abuse and dependence. Very important clinical pearl. Well, let's jump on to our third learning objective, and this is really about developing a treatment strategy that's going to work for that patient based on the best evidence that we have available, given the fact that we don't really have practice guidelines. Um, This, I think, is something that will take us back to what we do in all of medicine, and that's understanding the treatment of ADHD from this kind of this biopsychosocial perspective. I think it really is very important that we understand that clearly pharmacotherapy plays an important role. We're going to spend some time talking about the pharmacotherapies, but this should not be to the exclusion of the importance of psychosocial interventions, of education, because ultimately what we're looking for is what combination of these biopsychosocial interventions are going to result in the highest patient outcome, the patient living their life in a way that they would want the most productive, uh, hopefully the happiest way, given the comorbidities and other things that we've talked about. 
Well, David, you know, we've been talking a bit about uh, about undertreating adult patients. Uh, let's let's jump into some of the statistics about about undertreatment. Well, this myth that ADHD is overdiagnosed and overtreated in the United States is not supported by the medical research. If you look at the CDC's publication on prevalence for children in this slide, you'll see that of the children with ADHD, only 56% were getting treated in the past year. It grows worse for adults because in the National Comorbidity Replication Study, only 11% of the people presumed to have ADHD were getting treated. So we have a large number of patients with this condition who have never been diagnosed. In fact, for the adults in the National Comorbidity Survey, three out of four of the adults presumed to have ADHD were never diagnosed at any point in their life. So a lot of these people suffer and meander through their life trying to compensate and never getting treated. So we know that they're underdiagnosed and they're undertreated. So let's now assume that that we have paid attention to what we're talking about today, we've made the diagnosis, we're considering a treatment strategy. In that biopsychosocial model, we start with bio first. So David, let me throw it back to you about what are the approved agents for the treatment, pharmacologic treatment of adult ADHD? Well, we have a broad number of agents for children that are approved for children, but there are only five agents approved for adults with ADHD all of which are long-acting, once-a-day medications. There is one non-stimulant medication, atomoxetine, which is Stratera, and then you have the stimulants. Lisdexamphetamine is Vyvanse, dexmethylphenidate XR is Focalin XR, orismethylphenidate is Concerta, and mixed amphetamine salt XR is Adderall. The doses were established by the clinical trials, so you have a physician desk reference that says what the starting dose should be, some of these agents have maximum doses that were predicated when the FDA looked at the studies, which were forced dosed, so you had several dosing. They decided that since there wasn't any difference between the higher dose and the lower dose, they erred on the side of safety and put it in the lower dose. But the clinician needs to understand why that was written in the package insert and titrate the dose according to the patient's symptom improvement and rating symptoms. Kind of where our art of treatment comes in as providers. Jim, I wonder if you could jump in and uh, tell us a bit about the efficacy in adult ADHD with the, with the medications. I'm sure. This, this is an area that's still relatively new, mm -hmm. um, taking these treatments in adults with ADHD and putting them to a test with solid placebo control, double-blind conditions. Mm -hmm. Most of these studies um, uh, took a very parallel study design. So we're looking at um, symptom reduction, ADHD symptom across all possible 18 uh, items versus um, placebo uh, drop from baseline. In, in this first study with mixed amphetamine salts extended release, we see that all three of the uh, fixed dose conditions with um, amphetamine showed um, marked uh, overall greater improvement versus placebo uh, about double the uh, percentage of symptom drop versus placebo. Um, not a uh, steep dose response curve as we might expect, uh, possibly suggesting that prominent individual difference that we see clinically so often. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the doses used in this study were 20, 40, and 60 milligrams. And because, uh, as David mentioned, there wasn't a big difference between the high-dose versus low-dose conditions, uh, the approval didn't go up um, 
uh, to, to that uh, 60 milligrams. Uh, with the dexmethylphenidate extended release study, very similar design, placebo control, um, four or five week intervention period, we see um, all three active dose, fixed dose conditions, 20, 30, 40 milligrams, uh, surpassing the drop in ADHD symptoms versus placebo. So solid efficacy uh, was observed here mm-hmm. as well. You know, you, you mentioned the, um, the dosing curve. Uh, visually and numerically, there seems to be a difference as you go up on the dose, but if you do statistical analysis, there's no separation statistically from this. And, and so uh, when, when somebody pushes back and you're, you're uh, dosing your patient and they push back and say, well, how come you're, you're using a higher dose here? It says in the PDR that this is the maximum dose. And Dr. McCracken, why are you going higher? Well, again, uh, it's one of the striking things about working with um, ADHD individuals, both kids and adults. Um, but some respond very well to low doses, uh, but many, and particularly adolescents and adults, do require going higher on that, that dose range. So as, as high as 40 milligrams of mixed amphetamine salt, 72 milligrams per day uh, for the Oros methylphenidate, um, as shown yeah. here in in the clinical trial data. Well, I think this really highlights the difference between clinical research um, and being a clinician where you've got an N of one, that one patient. We would never consider in a, in a million years picking a fixed dose of, say, a, a medication for uh, insulin, for example. You know, we're going to say, okay, we're going to use so many units. I mean, as a clinician, we do what's best. I think it's important when we're doing educational programs to underscore that some of these things are off-label and that, you know, we as providers, as educators here need to kind of stay on label, but that the clinician needs to do what's, what's best for his or her patient and that sometimes, uh, you know, th- this might vary a bit from what the clinical trials tell us because we're not dealing with that N of one, that one patient sitting in our office. When it comes to initiating treatment, I think the general rule of thumb is to try at least three different dose levels um, before Mm-hmm. Uh, feeling like you're close to identifying that optimal dose. Yeah. What do you think about Oros, uh, you know, the efficacy there? Um, I, it emerged uh, very solidly uh, superior to placebo again. So um, you know, overall, the pattern that we're seeing from the clinical trials is that the, the stimulants work well in adults as, as they do in, in children. Uh, and across this dose range of 18, 36, and 72 milligrams, um, solid efficacy was observed. Good. Thank you. Well, how, how, then, how about the, 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 one of the, the new kids on the block, so to speak? Right. The, the newest study is with the Listex amphetamine. Um, uh, and, again, similar type of study, three different fixed doses versus placebo. And, and about a, a, a double the drop in ADHD symptoms versus placebo across hmm. 30, 50, and 70 milligrams per day, which is a, um, maps pretty well to the clinical um, effective dose range. Yeah. Well, we've talked about efficacy, but we all learned in our medical training that first do no harm. So maybe we should spend a few minutes talking about some of the side effects associated with the stimulant medications. These are Schedule II drugs. They're very similar, in fact, to the side effects that we're familiar with in terms of the use of these medicines in kids. Um, Not really many surprises there. So a decrease in appetite, um, insomnia, stomach ache, uh, weight loss, uh, 
those are common, maybe 20% uh, of individuals. Unfortunately, I think a lot of adults might view weight loss as not so much a negative side effect. I know I've had mm-hmm. patients who I think have, uh, when bikini season comes around in the East Coast, are looking for something to help them along. Have you seen that problem in your practices? Well, impulsive eating can be associated with, with ADHD. It's a part of poor self-control, you might say, for some individuals. Um, other kinds of side effects uh, that we look for, well-described uh, minor increases in blood pressure, uh, diastolic and systolic, uh, somewhere between 2, 4, 5 millimeters of mercury, um, an increase in, in heart rate as well, tremor, constipation, dry mouth. And uh, one thing that, that patients really complain a lot about uh, are the occasional mood symptoms experienced with these yeah. medications. Irritability, sometimes a kind of somber, low mood um, is not well-liked by uh, individuals taking these. More often that happens in my experience when the medication is wearing in, off at the end of the day. They say they get a bit uh, lethargic or they lose their interest, motivation, or get a little short fuse. Let me just mention about the cardiovascular issues because I know this is a concern to clinicians. And although it's reassuring to see that the changes in stimulant medications, and even when we get to atomoxetine, you'll see it there, that the mean changes are relatively clinically inconsequential. There are outliers in these studies who may have bump-ups in their blood pressure and pulse, and so it is prudent to take vital signs before you start medication and then sequentially after you're on medication to see what happens. Taking it before allows you in adults to make the diagnosis of an undiagnosed hypertensive patient that you might assume was secondary to the stimulant had you not taken a baseline blood pressure and pulse. That's a good point, a real good clinical pearl. Well, David, you mentioned that the five stimulants that are approved for all the long-acting. I wonder if you could comment on why we see this increased use of the uh, shorter-acting drugs despite recommendations. So the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry says, look, long-acting, once-a-day stimulant medications is first-line, first-choice. Unfortunately, we don't have such guidelines in adults, and we don't have adult physicians and practitioners trained in adults. And so some of them are using long-acting, but if you look at this research, if you look at the prescription data from 04 to 09, we see a somewhat alarming increase from 30 per, 34% are immediate release stimulants up to 49%. Almost 50% of the medication, stimulant medications for adults with ADHD are short acting. Well, these are the medications that are misused, diverted, and abused. And so why don't we try to educate our clinicians? Start with long-acting medications. If you need to add short-acting for some reason, at least it's a thoughtful afterthought and not the presumption we'll start with the short-acting. Good point. Well, we mentioned that they had the stimulants, but we do have the one non-stimulant. I want, David, if you could comment on, um, on the efficacy of atomoxetine in adults with ADHD. So atomoxetine, Stratera, has been around since 2002. It's got a long track record now. It establishes efficacy in adults in two trials. It's effective. You can see it on the slide. And the point I want to make here, though, is that clinicians think that if the patient has hyperactivity and impulsivity, I should use this 
medication. Mm -hmm. And if they have inattention, I should use this medicine. And if they have ADHD and ODD, I use this medication. And when you look at the research, the, the medications don't separate out that way. And so I caution clinicians about buying into this kind of selective bias on these medications. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I've certainly heard that from colleagues as well, saying, well, shouldn't I use this drug for this? And I tell them, if it's going to work, and they don't all work, I mean, they don't, certainly don't all work all the time. They're, they're all, will work in some patients, but not all. That, we, that we, under, we underscore that point that it, it, all of them that work will work in all of the domains. Atomoxetine is a, a very useful option, though, in, in several clinical settings, particularly where uh, substance abuse is present yeah. or is highly suspected or uh, comorbid tics, ang anxiety. anxiety. Well. Yeah, I know we see a lot of college kids at, at Temple. And one of the things, and, and again, stimulants are fine, drugs and work well, but one of the things we're always a little concerned about is the non-medical and diversion use. We know the stimulants, you know, they, they can be used for study drugs, for party drugs. So just one other thing to keep in mind. David, we, we talked about some of the efficacy of atomoxetine. How about going over some of the side effect issues? Well, the side effect issues with atomoxetine are quite similar, in fact, to the stimulant medication since it does promote noradrenergic transmission. It's got dry mouth, insomnia, nausea, decreased appetite, and dizziness associated with it. Atomoxetine, though, has unique sexual side effects associated with it. So if you're prescribing it, just query the patients about that, apprise them so that they can alert you if that happens. If you don't ask specifically about yeah. side effects, patients don't tell they physicians. Don't tell. They stop yeah. taking the medication, and they don't come back to see exactly. you. And you never know why that happened. Exactly. I think another important point with atomoxetine is it's not a stimulant. That doesn't make it better or worse, but the delayed effect. I think patients who have been on stimulants or when a patient starts a stimulant, they get a more immediate response, where atomoxetine, because of the nature of the molecule, is two to four to five weeks delayed. I think it's important that clinicians advise patients that, you know, certain things in life take time. And this is one of the issues that if, mm -hmm. if atomoxetine is going to work, it's not going to work overnight. Less dramatic yeah. um, in um, its onset. And exactly. So some, I think, yeah. you know, the, the importance of education, that kind of segues us into the psychosocial part. I mean, we've talked a bit about the biological and the pharmacologic, which is important, but I think it's very important that we attend to the psychosocial interventions as well. And as we started discussing education, what are your thoughts about, you know, the, the, the psychosocial interventions that are important if we're to get an optimal response to adult ADHD? Well, the impulse of the clinician is make the diagnosis, offer the treatment, and move on to the next patient. Uh, we need to encourage clinicians to take a moment and educate the patients about what this is. ADHD is a neuropsychiatric condition. It's not a function of poor parenting or low IQ or weak character. The other thing is if you educate them as to what it is and what it isn't and what the expectations are, you want to recruit their compliance and you increase adherence to the treatment at the onset. If you don't address that first, the patient walks off and goes, another doc writing another yeah. prescription. So that's very important. Now, physicians need to understand that nobody takes medications in this country without consulting Dr. Internet. And see, he knows more than you and Jim and myself. And so... Direct them to websites. Now, in your slide deck kit, there are a list of credible websites that we direct our patients to. The National Institute of Health, CHAD, which is the national organization, and there are a number of others. So get them to start there, and then they can work through their clicks through credible websites. The other thing is about treatment is behavioral and cognitive therapy treatments have been proven effective in controlled trials with adults who are on stable medication and the addition of CBT additionally reduces symptoms further and improves functioning. So 
treatment needs to be a biopsychosocial yes. educational approach for Jim. the patient and family members as well. Jim. The other part about education too is setting up reasonable expectations for treatment in the first place. Yeah. Um, we'll do the best we can with the treatments that we have, but they don't uh, necessarily take away all symptoms in all, all people. So um, understanding what's possible with the, the medications, for example, versus uh, the psychosocial treatments is going to be key, again, to cementing that uh, doctor-patient relationship and that good compliance over time. You mean this medicine won't make me thin, attractive, and bright? <laughs> well, hopefully. We wish. Well, you know, it reminds me of the old, the old DuPont line, better living through chemistry, that it is really more than just the pharmacotherapies, and that would we ever consider having a diabetic patient say, here, just take the insulin and not talk to them about stress reduction and diet and exercise? Again, that same medical model I think we need to apply to this as well. Well, David, Jim, thanks very much for covering uh, our learning objectives so well in the time that we have. Um, I know the audience is going to have uh, hopefully a lot of questions for you. You can contact us by calling, faxing, or emailing us with your comments and questions. You can call us at 800-879-2166. You can fax your questions to 240-465-5524. Or you can use the old Internet and email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com. We look forward to hearing from you. I want to thank you all. Happy, healthy holidays. And now for the fun part of the presentation, let's engage with our audience. Thanks, fellas. Thank you. Uh, yeah, they, we, I was just handed a question. Um, uh, it says a 21-year-old 20 male with ADHD inattentive diagnosed one year ago by neuropsych and psychiatrist. Tried uh, Adderall, and again, we're just going to read them as they are. We're not trying to plug any med here. Then went to Adderall XR when dose was appropriate. Allergic reaction of acne and pimples. Uh, tried Vyvanse and loved it except the allergic acne reaction. Then he went to Ritalin. When the dose was correct, went to Concerta at 45 milligrams. This is like an advertisement for our stimulants here. Uh, 21-year-old uh, cannot go without Ritalin. Says it's because he becomes unfocused, unproductive. Uh, he gets exhausted, so he takes Ritalin twice a day. I get this this issue of patients kind of figuring out what they think is best for them. Um, question goes on to say, I googled Adderall and acne, and a number of adults complain about reactions of acne with stimulants and the impact on acne. Could you comment on this issue of stimulants and acne? Um. I would like to comment on the preamble to this, and that is the diagnosis was based on neuropsychological testing. There are no specific neuropsychological tests that determine this diagnosis definitively, and I would caution clinicians about the utility of this because there are ADHD individuals who will score uh, under a threshold, and so depending on the neuropsychological interpretation, if you rest upon that to make the diagnosis, you may miss the diagnosis. This is a clinical diagnosis yeah. predicated on onset and symptoms, chronicity, and family history. So that's the caveat. Uh, the patient obviously has gone through a number of medications, has had a number of idiosyncratic side effects, all of which can occur with all of these agents, and it's problematic. I would recommend to the clinician that they follow a course of action. Now, you haven't mentioned atomoxetine, which may be added to the methylphenidate if the methylphenidate is not optimal in promoting yeah. a symptom resolution.
Yeah, I must say that, that this is the first I've heard of, of stimulant medications having a specific problem with acne. But, you know, anything is possible. It's just because it's not listed doesn't mean it's not there. Here's another question. It says, the thoughts on the role of antidepressant treatments in adult ADHD. The role of antidepressants? You mm -hmm. want to take that? Well, uh, one option that would represent off-label use is exactly. the um, uh, use of bupropion mm -hmm. as a treatment for uh, ADHD and uh, there are some controlled trial data that suggest uh, some efficacy for bupropion. It's an interesting choice, particularly for individuals who have a comorbid depression. mood disorder, um, mm -hmm. depression. You may be able to, to uh, affect both problems with the one, one treatment. Um, okay. Whether it, its strength of benefit for ADHD meets up to that of the psychostimulants or yeah. adamoxetine is another question, but it's definitely an often used option. Yeah, and again, we need to stress that this would be off-label, but there is some... I understand we have a live call-in from a Dr. Smith from Salt Lake City. Dr. Smith, please go ahead with your question. Uh, my question has to do with the interaction or the comorbidity with bipolar disorder. Uh, two parts. One is... Uh, how do you tell if it's truly ADHD versus the activation and mind racing and so on with bipolar? And secondly, what about the use of these typical medicines in a person who has bipolar? Is that problematic? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and it's a question that comes out in virtually every presentation that I'm involved in with adult ADHD. And my other expertise is in the area of mood disorders, so uh, this is bread and butter for me. A couple of diagnostic issues. One is that ADHD's symptoms start in childhood. Most bipolar disorders, first episode, occurs in adolescence. The index case occurs in adolescence, so you have a time of onset. Family psychiatric history, more often than not, flows either bipolar or ADHD. If you have someone who presents with bipolar disorder and they're unstable, stabilize the mood disorder first give them a month or two or three, whatever your tolerance is. And then if they clearly have ADHD, you can add stimulant medication into that. I would use long-acting once a day, start at a low dose, and then titrate up accordingly. This is where rating scales works very well because you can use the rating scale at baseline. And then as the patient is improving, you can check that with the rating scale as well. In my clinical experience, the destabilization of bipolar disorder with stimulants tends not to occur. However, you do need to monitor that and inform the patient of that. Now, can I cite any controlled research that supports what I just said? The answer is not a single controlled trial has been done in the treatment of comorbid bipolar disorder and ADHD. So this is really clinical experience and, and judgment. You have to make sure that you nail both diagnoses accurately. Mood disorders tend to fluctuate episodically whereas ADHD cognitive difficulties are chronic and unchanging. However, the cognitive difficulties of ADHD will worsen in the context of an acute manic episode or an acute depressive episode. So I hope that clarifies some of those diagnostic distinctions. I would just add that there is um, some emerging data from adults uh, with bipolar disorder to suggest that uh, functional impairment in those mm -hmm. individuals um, is driven strongly by comorbid ADHD. So it's a very important problem to address, even in euthymic 
uh, well-controlled uh, patients yeah. with bipolar disorder. Good, thank you. Another good question I see here is kind of the role of adult ADHD and addictions and the whole role of self-medication. I know, Jim, you mentioned that. I know, David, you've discussed a number of cases you've had. Maybe we could spend a minute or two talking about that. Well, it's a complicated area when it comes to treatment, but the overlap um, is very commonly encounter encountered when dealing with uh, populations of patients um, in substance abuse treatment settings, whether you're looking at uh, narcotic abuse or dependence or even um, smoking and smoking yeah. cessation. Um, strong evidence that uh, individuals with ADHD trying to quit smoking have uh, far lower abstinence rates. Start um, smoking younger, start smoking more heavily. I think uh, Willens and yes. some other folks have done some work. I think that's a really important area. I understand we have a call-in from Dr. Stallings from North Carolina. Dr. Stallings, what's your question, please? Uh, in establishing the diagnosis of ADHD in adults as well as children, it's emphasized that there'd be no other uh, disease or situation that could explain the disorder. Does that mean that people with less than normal IQ do not have ADHD, or does a low IQ, um, uh, is that still compatible with the diagnosis if the other criteria are met? That's an excellent question. Um, in fact, the presence of mental retardation increases the uh, rate of ADHD some two or three-fold. The challenge uh, that you, the caller alludes to is trying to appreciate what um, level of performance is developmentally um, expected given the individual's yeah. lower um, cognitive ability. But no question about it, um, we see a lot of ADHD um, and problems with inattention in individuals with um, varying degrees of mental retardation. So it, it um, uh, needs to be looked for and, uh, in fact, occurs commonly. Yeah, I think it's that change from whatever their baseline is, that Delta we're looking at. I understand we have another call from uh, Marie Gromley from Scottsdale, Arizona. Your question, please. That's a short question. <laughs> uh, let me go on. If, if Marie comes back online, we'll try to get her in. Um, can adult ADHD be diagnosed in people with intellectual disability or pervasive developmental disorder? Kind of picking up on that last, uh, that last question. Jim, you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, uh, going beyond mental retardation per se, um, we're coming to appreciate this very common overlap of ADHD um, with uh, autism spectrum disorders. Um, indeed, in, in some uh, investigations that have looked at individuals with an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis, you may see rates of ADHD behaviors as, as high as 40 to 50 percent. Mm. So it clearly is a common overlap. And while the data are limited, there's a, a reasonable um, evidence that even psychostimulants, um, atomoxetine, alpha-2 agonists um, can be useful in uh, the treatment of those, those symptoms in individuals with autism spectrum disorder. We, uh, we consider autistic spectrum disorders in children, but as more of these children get diagnosed and followed into adulthood, adult psychiatry really does need to come up to speed on the autistic spectrum disorder presentations in adult patients. Yeah, I think it really underscores there's a lot of work that really still needs to be done. I understand we have uh, Dr. Peter Meyerson from Denver. Dr. Meyerson, your question, please. Another short question. 
Maybe we already answered it. Dr. Myers, if you want to call back in, I know we're running a little short on time. So uh, if you call in, we'll, we'll try to get that back on. Another quick question says, uh, David, I think we'll throw this to you. Can you restate the percentage of the chances of a child, of a parent with ADHD to develop it themselves? You mentioned those statistics. Maybe you can repeat those for us. So here's the numbers to write down. The heritability rate is 75 to 80 percent. If you have a child with ADHD, the likelihood that a parent has it is 30 percent. Uh, the reference on this, again, is Steve Ferrone and uh, Dr. Biederman. If a parent has it, the likelihood that a child has it is 50%. These are good numbers to know because when you talk to families, you can explain this as a genetic neuropsychiatric disorder and go looking for other family members to treat as well. Great. Well, I know we've got a lot of calls coming in, but we're just about out of time. So I want to kind of finish up with some of the clinical connections of the pearls that we can, that we can uh, address uh, as we go through this, we know that you know, ADHD is very common in both kids and adults. I think we've highlighted that. The importance of screening for ADHD, regardless of the age, really getting back to that first, you know, that, that first goal that we had is put this on our radar screen. The importance of the diagnostic accuracy uh, when we're considering that some of these folks are going to have uh, comorbid conditions, how the symptoms present, giving them in the context of life, not just looking at in the work environment or the school environment, um, looking for other comorbid conditions. I think David did a really a nice job of kind of covering on the patient might actually come in presenting with anxiety or mood disorder, and we're not even looking for that baseline ADHD. And we know in all of psychiatry that when you have the comorbid conditions, if you only take care of one, you're just not going to see the, the, the effectiveness that we'd like to see with, with either of those. Um, how about some other clinical pearls you guys might want to follow up with here? Well, the symptom rating scale is important. Do it at baseline. Do it sequentially. Get the patient to fill it out. It's very time efficient. Use those rating scales to get collateral information. Simply send those scales out to mom or to a spouse or to a sibling. Don't rely solely on the patient. It may, it may be that the patient isn't meeting criteria because the patient's insight into their symptoms and impairments yeah. just isn't evident. And then wrapping this all up, you want to approach the patient with education, pharmacotherapy, psychosocial, um, social and organization produce okay. the best outcome. Great. This is disciplinary. Well, to our audience, uh, please visit our website at www.neurosciencecme.com for copies of the course guide from today's show and also links to some of the resources we've discussed and also download tools you can use in practice. I hope you can stay with us for our after the show segment, which will begin shortly. I want you to be aware of other CME neuroscience.cme activities, including the final in a series of journal clubs discussions on ADHD, which will premiere at noon Eastern time on December the 14th. The next live and on-demand activity will be noon Eastern time on December 16th. From all of us at Neuroscience CME, I'm Dr. Dave Barron, thanking you for joining us today and hope you're able to incorporate some of the important elements of today's discussion into your practice to improve the care of adults with ADHD. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to my colleagues and our audience.